Hi, I'm Jeremy Crockford. Our guests today are from Conservation Law Foundation. Recently, ISO New England, the organization that oversees the electric power grid for New England, took steps that are going to make construction of green energy, solar and wind, less affordable while giving a boost to fossil fuels. It's a step widely criticized by folks like the Conservation Law Foundation who believe we need to prioritize green energy, wean ourselves off fossil fuels, and get serious about climate change. CLF is joining other groups concerned about climate and the leaders of the six New England states in calling for ISO to make consideration of climate change a part of its mission, something that ISO is clearly not doing right now. Beyond issues with ISO, CLF is countering misinformation from the fossil fuel industry that advocates the continued use of climate damaging gas in electrical generation and in homes. The gas industry in particular has been aggressive in campaigning to keep on building its share to remain in the power supply. I wanna welcome Greg and Caitlin, who are also going to talk a little bit about the ramifications for green energy, fossil fuel production, and the climate of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That story is, is everywhere right now. They have a lot of good information on that. Welcome, Greg and Caitlin. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves before we start? Thank you, Jeremy. Hi, this is Greg Cunningham. Um, I direct the Clean Energy and Climate Change Program at the Conservation Law Foundation. So um, we're based in all six of the New England states, and we have climate and clean energy advocates in all six of those states, the legislatures, utility commissions, before any number of, of agencies of the state and federal government, um, pushing for, for really for solutions to the climate crisis. And I lead that program. Hi, Caitlin Peel Sloan. I'm the vice president for Massachusetts at Conservation Law Foundation, and I'm also an advocate in Greg's program, uh, where I work primarily on issues around uh, gas, fossil gas, and biogas, as well as coordinating our legislative advocacy across clean energy and climate issues. Great. Is there a way that one of you could explain in plain English what ISO does? Because for a lot of people, it is a new name, and even though its role is enormously important, um, it'd be great to hear a thumbnail of what ISO does, how long it's been around, and why it's important. And then if you could tell us a little bit about what exactly ISO has done over the last few years that has been less than helpful as far as getting fossil out of our generation mix. Sure, Jeremy, this is Greg. I'll take a first stab at it. And, and Caitlin, um, I encourage you to <laughs> jump in and correct me where I'm wrong here. But, but the essence of it is this, you know, the electric sector is a funny thing because we all make use of it and benefit from it, but very few of us know the basics of it. And, and one of the fundamentals is there's this entity in New England that's kind of the central planner of the electric grid, but more importantly, it runs these markets, essentially these auctions that provide revenue to uh, power plants. You know, those, you know, whether they're wind power plants or, or gas power plants, um, those that produce energy and that deliver electrons onto the electrical system and, and help ensure that the lights go on when we flip a switch. Well, in order to have those power plants online, 
uh, and ensure that they meet the demand for electricity, there's got to be an incentive system. Well, ISO New England runs that incentive system. And in essence, it runs these, these auctions through which bids are made and the lowest bid that can meet the electrical need uh, serves, you know, produces power that the next day. And so historically, when ISO was formed, it became this um, central manager that was much needed at the time. And the real focus at that time was reliability because you had lots of different utilities running their little fiefdoms. And ISO New England helped eliminate some of that and to centralize all the management of it. What has happened in you know, the last, well, since 2008, really, when both Massachusetts and Connecticut passed climate laws is that, and now in New England, we have five of our six states with climate laws that, that demand, that mandate by law, that emissions have to be reduced over time you know, by 45% by 2030 and 80% and by 2050. And ISO New England, though it serves those states, and uh, you know, though 90% of the electrical demand in New England is subject to this kind of climate law, ISO New England hasn't adjusted. And its sole focus continues to be reliability. And it, and it, in many instances, becomes its sole excuse as well. When it can't do something, it's because it's worried about reliability. When it's worried about a policy, it says it's going to put reliability at risk. And so we hear reliability, reliability, reliability. And we agree, reliability is really important. But the reality is, ISO New England's put in place all kinds of structures and rules and mechanisms that protect reliability. What it hasn't done is to act on climate. And it hasn't done that, even though the New England states have pushed for it. They've asked ISO New England to make reliability and climate part of their mission and mandate. But ISO New England will have none of it. And so these markets, these auctions that they run, are designed to, to build gas and oil power plants. That's what gets the greatest incentives in those markets. And it blocks renewables. And there's one other way that we that we build out power plants, and Caitlin can speak to this because she's been very involved in it, particularly in Massachusetts, is through purchases that our states make. So, Caitlin, I'd hand that to you. Sure. Thanks, Greg. So my perspective on ISO New England uh, has really come over the last decade where we saw the utter death, essentially, of coal plants, really large um, power producers in in one place, just a handful of those. We saw uh, the rise of natural gas generating plants that are usually a bit smaller. And now we're seeing the attempt at renewables to come in and take their rightful place in our energy generation mix. And the problem is that ISO New England was created essentially to shepherd the death of uh, coal plants and to bring in those natural gas plants, but it has just utterly failed to adapt to um, our climate imperatives and to what states need to do to meet our climate uh, mandates in the states. So we are at the state level having to go outside of ISO New England's markets to get the renewables online that we need. 
and get them paid for. ISO essentially works for us. ISO works for the New England states. And yet they have ignored this call that they start including climate in their formulations. What is available to us? What steps can we take to make ISO come around on this? To some extent, there's a, a collective action problem among the states because we do have six states whose administrations don't all agree about the steps we need to take to get renewables onto the system. You can look at New York, where there's just one state and one grid operator, and they have been a bit more successful in integrating renewables. But I think, you know, ISO did, has not always existed, and the states may need to take their own, take measures into their own hands to really remove more of the power from ISO and and put it back in the hands of the people that are actually taking steps to address the climate crisis. I just want to take a little bit of a step back here to provide some perspective. The UN came out with a report on climate last week that was devastating and addressed New England to some degree. At the same time, we've seen ISO delay essentially more green power for a couple of years. Can you talk just a little bit about what that UN report said and why it makes ISO's action so damaging? Sure, I can I can start and then Greg can hop in. Looking at the most recent ISO reports, what really jumps out at me is that in virtually every region outside of the US and Europe, countries that have been exploited historically by the West and that did not get to participate in the economic and lifestyle benefits that we got from the destruction of the climate, they're dealing with irrevocable and catastrophic damage. And in some cases, they're being made uninhabitable by extreme heat, flooding, and sea level rise. And that dynamic is accelerating. So there are devastating losses happening, um, some you know, starting to happen in the US as well, that could have been avoided and could have been adapted to if we in the wealthy countries had acted sooner to really curb emissions. So the, the UN report, the IPCC report is pointing out as they have been all along, but really this, the screaming red alert sign right now is that these catastrophic impacts of climate change are just gonna continue to accelerate and get harder to deal with the more we delay. And, and I mentioned just a moment ago, Jeremy, that each of the New England states um, has this, 30 per, this 2030 goal of reducing emissions by 45%. They didn't pick that number out of out of thin air. That's based on science. And it's because as these IPCC reports are demonstrating, the impacts that Caitlin just described, which we're already feeling, and additional impacts that are going to accumulate between now and 2030 are going to be irreversible if we're not meeting that 2030 deadline. So if we kick it into gear now with the help of ISO New England, which is essential we may avoid some substantial economic, social, individual, public health harms um, that otherwise we're going to lock in if, if we continue with business as usual. As we, as we confront the fact that time is running out, um, we're also seeing over the last year or two a real effort by natural gas to push back, even outside of the ISO issues. You see a coalition that's been formed trying to make sure 
that we don't disconnect um, natural gas from homes, from businesses. There is a real push to keep it in restaurants, despite some some negative reports out of Stanford that you shouldn't have natural gas coming into your house, that it's not healthy um, to keep it as part of gas stoves. We're also seeing a real push for long-term leak repairs, which is costing literally a billion dollars. And, and that too seems aimed at keeping gas in the mix because once you replace all those street lines and there's that new infrastructure, it's going to be very hard to disconnect. What is CLF doing to let people know that this take on natural gas is not, is not legitimate and that these are not things that we ought to be pursuing? Thanks for that question, Jeremy. CLF has been working for over 10 years now to point out at every opportunity where uh, gas utilities are regulated that we need we needed, you know, 10 years ago to stop expanding the gas system and to start transitioning onto non-combustion resources for heating our homes, for uh, cooking. And that has fallen on unreceptive years up until uh, the attorney general's office in Massachusetts put a petition to the Department of Public Utilities to try to get them to plan ahead. Because what the attorney general, speaking in its um, role as the advocate for ratepayers, for people who receive energy in the Commonwealth, they were pointing out that if you don't do anything, those extreme costs of replacing gas infrastructure are going to fall on a smaller and smaller number of customers as people who can afford to electrify their homes for all of the the climate and um, money and lifestyle benefits that you get from switching to a heat pump. Wealthy people are going to do that. Some institutions are going to do that. And then the people left paying the bill for those big gas infrastructure pieces are the ones who are least able to afford to pay that bill. And so it's not just a matter now of trying to push the policies we want. It's trying to get um, the regulators of gas utilities to see that there is a death spiral coming for these utilities if they don't dramatically change their business model. So CLF's been working on that, as I said, for a decade. We're right alongside the attorney general's office and other stakeholders in trying to get the Department of Public Utilities to recognize that the gas business model needs to change. That's uh, something that's taking a lot of my time these days, and that's something that's very important for us. It's interesting that the gas companies are are pushing back, and one of the things that they've done is to try to make a case that gas can be green. Can you talk a little bit about so-called renewable natural gas, which is their latest push? Absolutely. It's another instance of their branding prowess. It's it's essentially just a, it's other kinds of gas that you can burn that isn't coming from fracking. And there's a real bait and switch when they talk about renewable natural gas because they like to point to, say, landfill gas that's uh, methane coming out of a landfill or methane coming from a waste lagoon at a big dairy farm. 
that would otherwise have been going into the atmosphere. Um, you know, why don't let's collect that and replace some of the fracked gas that we're using with it. And the problem is that a there's a lot there are impacts and costs and emissions to capture that gas and refine it. But also, it's, there's a vanishingly small amount of that gas available and even possible found compared with the amount of fracked gas that we use now. And so what they they want to try to sell a bill of goods uh, about the potential of replacing frack gas with something that's more climate positive when try, they're trying to hide the ball and the fact that there just isn't enough of a replacement type of gas out there to make those changes. So they just want to keep their business model going and they're grasping at every possible straw to try to trick regulators and policymakers into not forcing them to change their business model. The, the reality, Jeremy, is these, these gas utilities only make money when they build out more pipeline and more gas infrastructure. And so they're attempting, when Caitlin refers to the, the business model, the business model is build more, expand, expand. And the states have a strategy of using electricity to heat buildings in a clean way using renewable energy um, that's not consistent with that plan. And so the utilities are attempting to counter with, oh, but we can continue to build out our system and make a ton of money if we just rely on this promise, but not reality, of renewable natural gas. It's a fallacy. You know, there's another area that they that the the gas um, and fossil industries have have latched onto in the last couple of weeks. There there is a lot of talk, particularly in the Republican Party, about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what it means for energy markets, and they have taken the tack, and they are taking the tack that we need to drill more, we need to create more fossil fuels, we need to to do more to create markets for Europe, for American fossil fuels. What is the answer to, to people who believe that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a reason to go backward on fossil fuels? I, I can start and happy to have a, a conversation with Greg about it. The fossil fuel industry globally rivals Putin for their skill at propaganda and doublespeak, and they never miss an opportunity to exploit tragedy in service of their agenda. So it's really important for policymakers not to confuse, on the one hand, what they might need to do in over the days and weeks of this conflict to lessen the impact of price shocks for ordinary people from, on the other hand, what they need to do to ensure that our energy costs are not held hostage to the fossil fuel industry going forward. So the, the fossil fuel industry is really trying to get more government money than they already get to be sunk into long-term fossil fuels when instead we need to deal with the crisis at hand on a very short-term basis and put as much money as possible into eliminating our dependence on fossil fuels. We, we keep hearing that Russia's invasion means we need to produce more fossil fuels to replace it. But can you just talk a little bit about why this may be such a good opportunity for green energy? 
you know, the the volatility of fossil fuels and particularly gas has haunted us for decades and yeah there there's always a new reason for it sometimes it's production issues sometimes it's it's storms sometimes it's war um but there's one thing that's consistent is you can never rely on the price of fossil fuels and so we are constantly our markets having to adjust and uh, we pay the price whether it's at the pump or um, with with the price of fuels to heat our homes and so both of those scenarios are avoidable if we're electrifying and building out more renewable energy which you know brings us back to what we were talking about at the outset here to the role that ISO New England can play in helping to to create smoother easier and frankly more profitable profitable pathways for that renewable energy to make it to market. I I really worry that we heard from ISO New England this winter uh, that uh, fuel scarcity, fuel security was a concern for them. And now we've got this crisis in Europe that's probably going to magnify and ramp up that, that call of concern from ISO New England, which on the one hand, in the short term, there there is a concern, and there is a concern for Europe, but it shouldn't be impacting policy here in New England. New England needs ICE and New England's help to help us not only address climate change, but to meet the laws in our states. Great. Thank you both very much for being here. Uh, this is fascinating, and obviously this is a moving target, uh, getting ISO to pay attention to climate and trying to get the gas industry off things like renewable natural gas. And in particular, we'll be keeping an eye on Ukraine and, and what that's going to do to energy markets. Thank you very much. Thank you.